Welcome, and once again, thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we begin in the book of Exodus. As we work through chapters 1 through 15, Pastor Josh teaches us how God shows his might and his mercy as he begins to free his people from slavery in Egypt. You can join us by turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, God Displaces Sovereign Might and Sovereign Mercy. We're going to read a passage from Exodus 12. If you're a visitor with us this morning, we're doing an overview series through the Old Testament. So we're taking sections way bigger than we normally do. Uh, today's section is Exodus chapters 1 through 15. We're obviously not going to read all of that, but if you want to turn to Exodus 12, we'll read a section there. Let's read verses 1 through 13. Um, spoiler alert, if you don't know the story of Exodus, this is the 10th uh, final plague that we'll see as we go here. And so we'll read this for our start, but then we're going to talk about all of Exodus 1 through 15-ish. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the tenth of this month, they are to each one to take a lamb for themselves. According to their father's households, a lamb for each household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Please bow with me and let's ask for God's help as we study. Oh, Lord God, um, Father, I feel like such a hypocrite being a sinner, and now I'm going to preach. God, these lips have sinned. My eyes, my body, my mind, my heart, riddled with sin, and and yet, God, I'm going to open your holy word and teach. And so, this would seem insulting unless you had designed this. And God, you call us sinners to make your word known, and so I ask your blessing, God. Father, please, for the glory of your name, make your truth to be known. God, we, your people in the room who love you, we've gathered because we want more of you. We want to meet with you in your word. We want to know everything about you we can. And God, we want to be just turned loose for worship 
We want to be convicted of our sins. We want to see the places where we are failing. We want to see our disobedience clearly. And God, we want to turn from them to honor you. And God, I pray for those in the room who are not yet your sons and daughters. They have never yet turned to honor you by turning for salvation, never repented of their sins, placed their faith in Jesus Christ, called out to you. And I ask God that you will so clearly show your truth and their need and their desperate place that God, this will be the day that they do turn to you. But Father, whatever it is that every soul in this room needs, we ask for you to accomplish it. All the world is a stage for you to display your glory. You are showing your greatness. I ask God that this time would be another way you do that. Lord, that what happens here would be a platform for you to show your worth, your greatness, your majesty, your sovereignty, and God, that we would respond to that rightly. Bring us to worship, Lord, we pray. Lord, it is through the name of Christ that we ask these things. Amen. Certain books of the Bible uh, highlight different truths. It's what makes them distinct. As we walk through the book of Genesis uh, over the last uh, period of time, we saw things like uh, God's creative wisdom, God's artistic beauty, his, his power to, to make and design highlighted. Now listen, that's who God is all the time. But the book of Genesis is the place where that's most specifically highlighted. It's shown. Well, in Exodus, we see more of God's character and who he is highlighted. So it's kind of like there's all of this that is God's glory. We can only see of God what he chooses to reveal to us, what he chooses to make known to us. The book of Genesis shines a light on one part of God's glory. You go to different books of the Bible, like say Ephesians, Romans, and the New Testament. It, it shines light on, a, on another part of who God is and his will for us, his will for this earth. Well, the book of Exodus has a, has a very particular part of God's glory that it shines a light on. It lights up this part of God's majesty. Uh, Pastor Mark Dever uh, has preached a, a very helpful series through the Bible where he takes entire books of the Bible and he preaches a single sermon over the whole book and kind of captures the whole meaning of the message in, in one thing. And if you were to read that, you would see I was greatly helped by that this week. But in his summation of the book of Exodus, uh, the title of his message is All the World's a Stage, which comes from a line in one of Shakespeare's comedies. God uses the world as a stage to display his glory. Friends, that's the case in all of history. That's what God is doing today. But the book of Exodus shows this particularly. It's not the only place. You'll find this in the book of Romans, in the book of Ephesians, in the New Testament. But Exodus does this in a really remarkable kind of way, highlighting this part of God's glory. One aspect of you knowing who God is, is to know that he works for the display of his glory. God works to the praise of the glory of his grace. All the world's a stage. If you get that truth, you're getting deep into understanding the Bible, but, but 
who God is, why, why he's done what he's done in history, how all the works of God tie together in history. We, we have been saying this sentence over and over again since we began this Old Testament series. The glorious God is displaying his glory by saving a people to himself through his son. And the book of Exodus is another installment in showing us how God is doing this and how he is displaying this. God displays his sovereign might and his sovereign mercy. It's helpful to understand passages of the Bible to sort of see some of the structure, the organization, what's said and how it's broken down. So here are some of the central truths. So this is all by way of introduction. Some of the central truths of the book of Exodus. God displays his glorious sovereignty so that all will know that he is the Lord. Now we're going to give you just one sentence as a central idea, a short sentence. That would be the, the first one. There's more to come. I'm going to be using this word sovereign quite a bit today. So I want to give a little bit of a definition for it so that we understand what we mean by this. We use this word all the time here because if you study the Bible, it is unavoidable. This is all through the scripture, but it's highlighted very much so in the book of Exodus. So when we speak of God's sovereignty, we are speaking of God's absolute authority overall and his absolute power to do whatever he wants. All three of those phrases are significant to understanding what God's sovereignty is. His absolute authority, he has the right over everything. His absolute power, he is, owns and possesses all strength, all might to do. And I love this last part and it is crucial that we see this last part to do whatever he pleases. We speak of nations of the earth being sovereign, but they're not absolutely sovereign. They may have rightful authority, but they don't have absolute authority. And they certainly don't have absolute power to do whatever they want, thank God. God is the only one who possesses complete authority. Listen to me guys, God has the right to rule Every neutron in existence in the physical world, not only of this earth, but over the, the millions of light years of geographic territory of the cosmos and the right to rule all that makes up the spiritual realm. Every angel, every demon, every soul of man, every spiritual being, God rules over them in the heavenly realm as well. A nation of the earth will only rule over a, a partial defined territory. God rules the cosmos, physical and spiritual, just as the New Testament speaks of Jesus being Lord over all, both of heaven and earth. And not only does God have the right of ownership, the right of authority to rule over these things, God has absolute power to do something about it. God has the power to enforce his will. God has the power to speak to his creation and his creation respond instantly. God has the power to do whatever he pleases. And friends, one, another, another aspect of this that's crazy is that includes future events. Like it's future from our perspective. God is outside of time. God rules over time in a way that just we cannot get our minds around. But from our perspective, events that are not even here yet, God already has sovereignty over those things. He is absolutely sovereign in control. This is what we mean by the sovereignty of God. And God's sovereignty is a major part of what makes him glorious. Glorious. 
Friends, it is a major part of what makes him God. So with that in your head, let me give you three sentences which sum up the entire book of Exodus. If you got a bulletin on your way in, uh, I, I put this in your notes there, just sort of copied and pasted it from my notes there uh, because I wanted you to be able to see this and I knew that you, you note takers would not be able to keep up with how fast I'm gonna say this. So let me walk you through it very, very quickly. And so you're welcome, you've got it there. Here's your sentence number one, overview statement, and then we're gonna break it down a little bit. God displays his sovereign might and his sovereign mercy so that all will know that he is the Lord. Let's break that down. Here's the second sentence. It has six parts. He displays his sovereign might, number one, over Pharaoh. Number two, his sovereign authority over the gods of Egypt. Number three, his sovereign power to control creation. Number four, his sovereign power even to make a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. Number five, his sovereign authority to take life or save life. And number six, his sovereign authority to give his people his law. And then here's the third sentence. God displays his sovereign mercy to his people, six ways. Number one, to deliver them from the bondage of slavery. Number two, to deliver them from Pharaoh and his army. Number three, to deliver them from the angel of death. Number five, to deliver them from hunger and thirst. Number five, to enter into covenant with them. And number six, most spectacularly, to offer deliverance from their sins. That is the book of Exodus in a nutshell. What we're going to do today is we're going to walk through the storyline and look for these things. Occasionally we'll pause at some of the important moments, do a little teaching and things there. But let's start at the beginning and we'll try to make it through about the first 15 chapters for today. In, in my plans for the next coming weeks, we've got, got two to three more Sundays in Exodus. We'll see how the study time goes. Exodus chapter 1. If you flip over to there, we're, we see a little bit of catch-up that's made from the book of Genesis. We're reminded of the fact that the book of Genesis ended with 70 family members from this special people down in Egypt, out of the land of promise. They're there because there was a famine. But Israel ended up staying. Things went well for them. See, see, Joseph and his legacy as the, the second in command in Egypt really gave them a kind of notoriety. Life was good for them. There was a period of prosperity and Israel eventually came to think of it as their home. It was not their home. But that's a danger with living in a place for too long. You can come to see it as your home. Christian, that's the danger. That's the temptation of living in a place for too long. Christian, this is not your home. A temptation of living here too long is to start to think of it as your home. Israel stayed in the land for a long period of time. But a day came when there was a Pharaoh who came to power where the distance between Joseph and history was so long that this Pharaoh had never even heard of Joseph. And he looked on this flourishing people living in the land of Goshen as a threat. We see fulfillment to God's promises to Abraham. The Israelites multiplied exceedingly. They had lots and lots of babies. God took care of them. There was blessing. There was flourishing. This Pharaoh decided that he needed to do something to keep them in check. So the first action that he took was he enslaved the Hebrews. For 430 years, they lived under the, the cruel weight 
a forced servitude, building cities for Pharaoh. But still, they multiplied. Pharaoh then tried to convince midwives to secretly kill the baby boys in birth. But that didn't work because the midwives feared God and Israel still continued to multiply. And so eventually, this Pharaoh, and by the way, little, little historical note here, we do not know which Pharaoh. Okay, like if you watch the Disney cartoon, whatever, they're going to call him Ramses and things. Okay, we, we do not know which Pharaoh. It's kind of interesting. There are even dates um, and events that happened before the book of Exodus, like Abraham, for instance. We know exactly when he lived because we can piece together some things from archaeology and certain kings that are mentioned. But in the book of Exodus, we actually don't know the exact dates. We don't know which Pharaoh it is. I'd really like to know that to kind of put a date. The, the date that is most commonly given is 1600 BC, if that kind of helps you put some things in chronology, in your mind here. But I think it's, I think there's another one of these implied truths here. Here is this Pharaoh who at this time was the most powerful king on the face of the earth. And yet ultimately so insignificant. We don't even know his name and we can't even point to history to for sure figure out which one. But this Pharaoh takes a drastic authoritarian step passes a law that all Hebrews were to cast their newborn boys into the Nile River. It was a dark season for this special people. Friends, never forget that our God is not afraid to and he often uses suffering in the lives of his people to accomplish his purposes. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat that. It just bluntly lays it before you. But one day, a husband and wife from the tribe of Levi gave birth to a beautiful boy. They defied Pharaoh's command, kept him in their home secretly for three months. After this period of time, eventually they saw they couldn't keep him hidden any longer and then committing him to the Lord. There's a lot more of this part of the story I'd like to know. We're not given the details. Did God somehow give them a message? It's all gonna be okay, I'll take care of him. We don't know any of this, but somehow committing him to the Lord, they take a drastic step. They do, in a sense, cast him into the Nile, but they make a papyrus basket covered in pitch and tar, place their little boy, mothers, just for a moment, just, just try to imagine the moment of laying your child in the basket like a little Noah in a tiny little ark sent, sent down the river. Intentionally, they chose a place upriver from where Pharaoh's daughter was at the moment. The little boy's sister follows along as her baby brother is floating down the Nile and she hides in the bushes to keep track and make sure this is going to work out the way that they want it to. This little basket floats down to Pharaoh's daughter, floats right up to him, and, and when she looks on this baby, I mean, you got you to think about this. This is a pretty critical moment. Her father is the one who instituted this awful policy. Her father, if he had been there, would have wanted her to flip that basket over. But instead of that happening, she looks on his little face, says one of the Hebrews have put their babies here. And for some reason, she takes pity on him. Now, I think it's pretty clear why she took pity. We see God's sovereignty over the heart 
and the mind all throughout the book of Exodus. Why does she have compassion on this little boy? She does. She decides to keep him. She speaks to some of her servants around here. And at that moment, the little sister jumps out of the bushes and says, conveniently, I know someone who could nurse that baby for you. And by the time the deal is done, the little boy goes back to his own mother and she's even paid to be his nurse for a season of life. Pharaoh's daughter named the little boy Moses, which in the original language means to to draw out. She had drawn him out of the water. The account of Exodus fast forwards to when Moses was grown. We know almost nothing about his childhood. What did it look like growing up in Pharaoh's home and, and his relation to the Israelites? We don't know any of those things. But we come to a day when Moses walks out to visit his brethren as they're suffering under their hardship. Moses sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and something stirs inside of him. He feels a desire to aid. He wants, to, he wants to protect his people, to deliver them. So he actually jumps in and attacks and murders the Egyptian. Friends, as you read the Bible, there is not one of your Bible heroes who is spotless other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Every single one of your Bible heroes has some dark part that we see God's grace extended in them. I don't know about you, that makes me a little bit happy about my relationship with God. Mercy is given. The matter becomes known. Pharaoh seeks to kill Moses and Moses flees. He comes to the land of Midian, meets and marries a woman named Zipporah and basically thinks that he will live out the rest of his days in the land of Midian. His heritage and that history behind him. And chapter two, if you'll jump there real quick, ends with verses 23 to 25 on a little note of what's happening in the heavenly realm as all of these things take place. Verse 23, now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. Remember how all the time we have spent looking at God's covenant beginning in Genesis, God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. The account again quickly fast forwards 40 years again. And at the age of 80, 80, yes, I think there's a point. So long as you have life, the point of life doesn't stop. Never stop laboring for what you have been created for. God, at the age of 80, I mean, you just got to think, Moses, thinking of what the rest of his life is going to look like here. I'm just going to be a shepherd. I'm just going to finish out my days here. At the age of 80, God calls him to be a prophet, a leader, and a savior. That happened in chapter three at the burning bush. Moses sees this supernatural sight, a bush that is on fire, but the bush is not consumed. He walks over from the fire. God speaks and God reveals himself to Moses. If you'll jump to chapter three, look, pick up in verse 10 here. Let's read a little section of this. God is in the midst of a conversation with Moses in verse 10. Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. 
When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses, then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Let's, let's pause there for a second and talk about this. We have a new revelation that the Bible's giving us here. The Hebrew word for I am that you see there, it is this word, Yahweh. This word, this name of God is the most holy, the most personal, the most sacred name that we have been given. In, in fact, even to this day, Jewish people would be offended by the fact that I even uttered those syllables out of my mouth. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, uh, after the exile and such, the Jewish people would not even speak this name because they regarded it so holy and if, uh, with such a special weight. Now, I, I take a different belief than that because we see people in the Bible use this name of God. I do believe we're able to use it. I do believe we are to be careful when we speak this name. But here's a little help for you whenever you're reading the Old Testament. With almost every translation that you would have on your lap right now, when you're reading the Old Testament and you encounter the word Lord, if you'll notice very carefully, it might be spelled in a couple different ways. Here's what I mean. You'll encounter the word Lord sometimes in the Old Testament and it's capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. And other times you'll encounter the word Lord and it's capital L with lowercase O-R-D. What your English Bibles are showing you there is that there are two different Hebrew words being used there for those two names. The first one, capital L and the lowercase O-R-D, is the Hebrew word Adonai. It's used of God, but that's a, that's a word that was also used for others. So like when Abraham was called sir or mister or master of some kind, that would be used. But this Hebrew word Adonai means sovereign or authority, ruler, and it is oftentimes used for God in the Old Testament. But whenever you're reading and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, what your English Bibles are showing you is the Hebrew word being used here is the name Yahweh. And the reason why they render it is because of this tradition of the sacredness of this name being kept intact. So as you're reading, you'll see these things. But I want you to think about what it is that God's revealing here. This Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, comes from the verb to be. You see it translated there, very good English translation. It's I am. God says, when they ask who it is who sent you, your answer is, tell them I am sent you. Now, there's an entire book about what God is revealing here, but here's the summation. God is revealing that he is the God who is the self-sufficient and self-existent one, the God who is eternal, the God who is dependent on no one and nothing else. There's nothing that he needs outside of himself. He doesn't have to have food, doesn't have to have air. He needs no one else. He is the I am. He's the eternal one. It's also helpful for you to see that on numerous occasions in the New Testament, Jesus took this name and applied it to himself. Guys, that's a big deal. Jesus took the name I am 
and claimed it for his own. Here's one of the places, John 8, we referred to a couple weeks ago, we were talking and uh, Jesus speaks to some of the, the Jews there and he says, you are of your father, the devil. A little bit later in that passage, uh, Jesus makes this comment and he says, uh, Abraham longed to see my day. The Jews look at Jesus and, and they go, you're not even 40 years old. Abraham lived 2,100 years before that moment. You're not even 40, 40 years old and you've seen Abraham. Are you out of your mind? Jesus replied, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was born, I am. Guys, that's a big statement. And they pick up stones to kill him because they understood what he was doing. They accused him of blasphemy. Jesus takes the name Yahweh and applies it to himself. That is the boldest claim of deity he ever made. In Revelation, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. God has revealed something new here. We're gonna pick back up on that in a second, but God has revealed something else in the course of Revelation. As we come to chapter four, the same conversation continues that's going on in chapter three, this conversation with God. God gives Moses certain supernatural signs to show to the people, show to Pharaoh. When you just show up, you can't, when you show up into town, you can't just be like, hey, I'm from God, follow me. Gives him some signs to show and authenticate and verify the message, just as Jesus, when he came to this earth, brought signs to show that he is from the Father. But as this conversation goes on in chapter four, Moses starts to, it sets in on a little bit of what this is gonna mean, the difficulty of the task. So he starts to argue with God. He starts to try to talk God out of this. Um, God, I'm not the right guy for this. I, I, I don't speak well. I just, I stutter. I'm not good at this. I'm fearful. I've got all these things going for us. And God continues to press on him. No, you don't understand I am the one who am calling you to this. God tells Moses, I created human mouths. I made yours. I, I got this. I will give you words to speak. I will empower you. Moses continues to argue with God over and over again. God even gets angry. Moses argues so much. Eventually God impresses upon him. Look, you're, you're doing this. This is happening. God connects Moses with his older brother, Aaron, and together they go to the people. They show them the signs that God gave them. Chapter four, verse 31 says, so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. At the very first conversation, the people are very excited. This all seems so swell right now. It will not stay that way. Before they will be delivered, there will be devastation. That is the way of this world and it's the way for you and I, Christian. Before the glory of Christ is revealed, there will be darkness. There will be persecution. In chapter five, Moses begins this set of actions. He comes to Pharaoh and he tells him, thus says, look, look at the little language there in the early part of chapter five, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. Pharaoh responds by saying, never heard of him. Uh, but besides, I don't care. I'm not letting them go. Pharaoh actually gets ticked. Actually increases the workload on the people, calls them lazy, says, I'll take care of this real quick. Increases their workload to an unattainable level. And then something very interesting happens. The people turn on Moses. 
they hate him. Now that actually is going to become a theme. There's going to be a lot more of that. They scream at him. They despise him. They tell him, why, why are you meddling? Just leave us alone. We've got a fine life here. We've got food to eat. Slavery's not that bad. We're, we're, we're fine. Moses just, oh, would you just mind your own business? You know, we read that and we think, how could you be so stupid? The living God says, I'm going to free you. I'm going to redeem you. And then we look around. We look around at our life and others. And we see that we regularly choose bondage to sin over the freedom of redemption that is right at our fingertips in Christ. We choose misery. We choose addiction to sin. We, we choose bondage because there's the instant fix, the fast pleasure, and the process of redemption is a hard and bloody and cross-bearing path. Ironically, it's the path of joy, but it's not easy joy. Moses is devastated when the people turn on him. And he has a moment there in chapter five where he cries out to God. God, I, I thought you were calling me to something good here. God, God, this isn't the way this was supposed to go down. I thought I was supposed to be bringing deliverance. They're, they're worse off now than they were. Their lives are harder. They just want me to get out of here. Listen, friends, every single pastor wrestles with those same kinds of things. Every single form of spiritual leadership has those exact same kinds of moments. The process of shepherding souls has a lot of this. Every single one of us in the process of our redemption, you come to Christ and that process of maturing and strengthening, there are times we get angry with the word. There are times where things get worse before they get better. Moses is devastated, but then God answers him. Jump to chapter six there. Look at how God answers Verses one through eight, there's some things he says. There's a parenthesis for theology because that's what God does all the time. But start off there in verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, he will let them go. And under compulsion, he will drive them out of this land. Now notice there's a little parenthesis of theology here. Let's, let's look at that. It's good. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as, now watch this, God Almighty, but look at your footnotes. If you got a Bible that's got some of those cross-references footnotes, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. That's another name of God. And that's the name of God he revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they didn't know the personal, holy, sacred name of Yahweh. This is progress in what God is revealing more and more over time, if you think about it, kind of like how in the fullness of time, God would send his son, God would reveal another name that had not been known in history, new revelation. You got the same thing happening here, friends. And I did not make myself known to them. Verse four, pick up again. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourn. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that 
that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. In chapter 7, we see the actions that God will take in order to deliver his people. Jump to chapter 7, start in verse 2. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Oh, we're coming back to that in a second. That I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Moses then begins a series of meetings with Pharaoh. Moses will come and meet with Pharaoh and he will say, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. Pharaoh will refuse and then God will unleash a plague. Now, let's talk about these plagues for a sec before we look at them specifically. At its most basic level, these plagues were supernatural signs which brought devastation on the land of Egypt, which proved the sovereign might of God, and they would eventually force Pharaoh's hand, force him to let Israel go. But there is some more to it than that. There's some deeper stuff. Uh, Jump to chapter 12, verse 12 again. I want you to see one more thing that's emphasized here in this. Chapter 12, 12, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And watch this. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. See, the Egyptians worshipped a pantheon of gods. They had a, a god of the storms. God of the rains, God of fertility, God of the crops, on and on. Even the Nile River itself was worshipped as a God. They made offerings. They, they lifted up worship to the Nile River. And if you think about it, that makes sense. You know, let me back that up. Makes sense in a pantheon of gods kinds of way. But the significance that we see of the Nile River in their life. This is a desert region. And what brings fertility, what brings prosperity to this region is the fact that the Nile River runs through and gives this fertile, what we call the fertile crescent and gives life to this region here. They understood that and saw the significance, the source of the only reason things will grow and we have life so much so that they worshiped it as a God. And what God does in the plagues is that with each one, God takes an Egyptian God, false God, and he shows his utter sovereignty over it. He makes a mockery of the Egyptian God. So, so the first plague, the water into blood. Here is this God that they worship. And in just a moment, all it takes is Moses just pouring out a glass of water. In just a moment, the one true and living God turns the source of life into death. He executes his absolute sovereignty over their false god. The Egyptians also considered the sun in the sky one of their gods. In fact, their highest or maybe one of their highest of gods, they called him Ra. 
In fact, it was believed that Pharaoh himself was a descendant from Ra. Hang on to that. And so in the ninth plague, which is really weighty and heavy one, the darkness that God brought over all the land for three straight days, a darkness that could even be felt. Think about what God is doing there. The one true and living God is exercising his sovereignty over raw. Raw is nothing. Raw grovels at my feet. There is only one who is the sovereign. And so these plagues crush the false gods. All right, so let's talk about the individual plagues. The first was water into blood. Even water that was already in pitchers or cups was turned to blood in one moment. Look at the specific language because this keeps helping us. You get the understanding. Listen to me. You are learning who God is when you see language like this. Chapter 7, verse 16. You shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, by this, you shall know that I am the Lord. That language right there is repeated over and over again. You are getting at the heart of who God is and what he does by this. Our God works to display his might and majesty and there is no greater gift he could give you. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff of my hand and it will be turned to blood. Seven days pass and Moses comes to Pharaoh again. In chapter eight, he unleashes a plague of frogs, which I am told is Amber's worst nightmare in all of history. Hordes and multitudes of frogs come out of the Nile by the work of God, invaded Egyptian homes, houses. Now, when I was a kid and, and you know, I heard these stories, I was like, oh, that'd be cool. You know, frogs they ain't that bad. Okay, but anybody who has slept on the floor, uh, on the ground in the middle of the woods in the middle of the night knows this. Things that in the daytime are not scary at all suddenly at night turn into ferocious beasts, okay? And the first time a frog jumps in your mouth, okay? The first time you're trying to eat, the first time that you're doing all these, just, just think about this, okay? Think about the imagery. You're standing on the banks of the Nile and at the word of Moses, out of the water, here they come, invading houses, every pot you reach for, every bite of food you look at, the smell, you lay down in your bed, frogs, 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 frogs everywhere. No, it's not the worst thing that could possibly happen. I'm sorry, Amber is freaking out. Okay, sorry. It's not the worst thing that could possibly happen, but God is gonna say later, I could break you in one moment. I am choosing to slowly unleash these things to display my power and my might. God displays his sovereignty even more that not only at the command of Moses did they invade the cities, but even picking the exact moment when it would end. God told Moses, go to Pharaoh and ask him, when do you want the frogs gone? Moses speaks, all right, it'll be done at the moment, death of frogs. And they have to scoop them into heaps. We're told the whole land stunk because of it. Now, before we go any further, we got, we got another theological matter to look at here. There's another major truth that we have to look at as we, as we walk through these things. We've seen it already. It comes up more than a dozen times. It is this whole thing about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. If you look at chapter eight, verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. In that verse, it is specifically told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But there's a lot more said. We see many other places where it is said that God actively 
worked to harden his heart. Jump back to chapter 4, verse 21. Let me give you a few places to look at. Verse 21, this is before it even began. 421, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. It was the will of God not for it to work the first time. Jump to chapter nine, verse 11. Really heavy one, by the way. Chapter nine, verse 11. Read a whole section here with me. This is in the plague of boils. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils are on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Verse 12, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. Watch this. But indeed, for this reason... I have allowed you to remain, or or the Hebrew there could also be translated, I have raised you up in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Chapter 10, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell on the hearing of your son and your grandson. If I could pause there and just say as well, 3,600 years later as True Vine Baptist Church would meet on a Sunday morning that we may tell in the hearing of our children how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am the Lord. One more, chapter 14, verse 17. This is at the Red Sea. This is the final moment that this will happen. Chapter 4, verse 17, As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, into the Red Sea after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, God Displaces Sovereign Might and Sovereign Mercy. Tune in again next week as we continue to work through the book of Exodus. True Vine Baptist Church also invites you to like our Facebook page or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.